I might as well wait because y'all aren't going to pay any attention until they're out the door. <laughs> and I don't blame you because I wasn't either. <laughs> Our gospel lesson is from Luke, the 14th chapter, verses 25 through 33. Uh, hear God's words for you. Large crowds were walking along with Jesus when he turned and said, You cannot be my disciple unless you love me more than you love your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters. You cannot come to me unless you love me more than you love life itself. You cannot be my disciple unless you carry your own cross and come with me. Suppose someone wants to build a tower. What's the first thing you will do? Won't you sit down and figure out how much it will cost and if you have enough money to pay for it? Otherwise, you'll start building the tower and will not be able to finish. Then everyone will see what's happening and they will laugh at you. They will say, you started building, but you couldn't finish the job. What if a king, what will a king do if he has only 10,000 soldiers to defend himself against a king who's about to attack him with 20,000 soldiers? Before he goes into battle, won't he sit down and decide if he can win? If he thinks he won't be able to defend himself, he will send a messenger and ask for peace while the other king is still a long way off. So then you cannot be my disciple unless you give away everything that you own. This is the word of the Lord. My suspicion is, is that in whatever way we like to calculate, quote, success, all of us see ourselves as being successful, serious people to some extent. Now, by serious, I don't mean somber, but I mean people who take seriously our commitments. And after all, that's a part of what makes a person successful, right? Whatever else you can say about we Americans, we love a success story. And it doesn't have to be the usual. We love to pull for the underdog. The player who just barely makes the team and everybody knows he's never going to get to play and suddenly on one Saturday, he's the star. We just love that kind of stuff. Or the student who really wasn't a very good student and who suddenly one day wakes up and finds their calling in life and goes out and changes the world. We love those kind of stories. Now, of course, we all, all also want success in the way this world measures success, we all need some money and we need some power and we need some prestige. Most of us achieve some of that along the way. And if we are wise, we are fortunate enough to know that we didn't do all that on our own and we have really been amazingly blessed. But for many of us, our perception of success comes as we think about who we are. Have we lived up to the standards we've set for ourselves? Have I used God's gifts for good? Have I been a good parent? Have I been faithful to God in my calling as a Christian? Do I have other people's respect? Do I afford other people their respect and dignity? Am I successful in my occupation? Do my coworkers respect and like me? Do people value my opinions? Am I a success in personal relationships? That and 10,000 other ways we measure what it means to be success. 
I know none of us do it perfectly. All of us fall short at some point on the list. That's just part of being human. We can always improve. But at least for the most part, all of us have had some taste of life's successes. And I'll argue there's nothing wrong with us being wise enough to go through a process of measuring who we are against the standard of who we thought we wanted to be. I think that's vital for us as Christians. Self-evaluation is important. As long as we remember, and I'm going to repeat this again a little later, as long as we remember not to judge ourselves more harshly than we deserve to. The problem always arises when we want to measure success the way the world does it. Have we accumulated enough stuff? Do we have sufficient power to make other folks do what we want them to? But that kind of success pits people against people and ultimately ends up being pretty destructive. Okay, so what's all this talk about success have to do with the text for today? Well, one of the great struggles I see in the Gospels and in the life of Jesus is his attempt to balance his obvious success in attracting people to come and listen to him with the greater, deeper demands of the Gospel. It is obvious that Jesus is being inordinately successful in the text that precede the one for today. But he wants to also make sure we're aware of what those deeper demands are going to look like. Jesus wants us to come and follow. That's obvious. But he also wants us to know that following him isn't easy. Success in the kingdom standards comes with great requirements as well. It's for serious people who understand it's serious business. And the writer of Luke, I think, is struggling to help us understand that. In the preceding story to the text I read for you, Jesus describes the kingdom of God as being a great party. And he tells who gets invited. It's not the rich and the powerful, but it is the poor and the downtrodden, just sort of average folks. Like many people today, the Pharisees were quite sure that a sign of God's blessing was if you're rich and powerful. And Jesus takes that idea and turns it on its ear. The very people, that is the sinners and the outcasts, that the Pharisees thought had no power are the very ones Jesus is inviting into the kingdom and into the feast. These poor, uneducated, unable to follow all the laws, they're the ones, Jesus says, who are going to be a part of the kingdom of God. It's no wonder the Pharisees stayed mad at him all the time. But the crowds, of course, loved what Jesus was saying. And at this point, they were willing to follow him most anywhere. And probably, if the truth be known, they would have been perfectly content to declare him their earthly king if he had asked for it. In fact, we know at least in one place in the gospel, they tried to make him a king. After all, who fed the multitudes, healed the sick, raised the dead, taught with such deep conviction? Jesus, of course. 
And so in some ways, the text for this morning is how Jesus begins to deal with His own success. Again, you'll notice there was a great crowd following Him. They liked Him. They liked what He was saying. And if anything, Jesus begins to realize, well, if He's not been too successful, maybe, maybe He's been a little bit misunderstood about what His kingdom entails. And so Jesus gives the crowd a severe reality check. Yes, God loves you. Yes, God wants you. God wants the best for you. But there are demands if you're going to be a part of this kingdom. Now today it depends on which translation you read as to how severe this reality check is going to be. If you were upstairs and you looked in the Pew Bibles, which are NSRV, it would say, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. The contemporary English, which is what I read for you, softens it a little and says, you cannot be my disciple unless you love me more than. But if you go back to the Greek, it is quite literal in using the word hate. And then it lists all the familial relationships. Now that's a reality check. If you thought being a part of this kingdom was easy, bam, not so easy after all. Now, does anybody here really think Jesus said you're supposed to hate all those people you're supposed to love? Does anybody really think that's what this text means? The word that's used for hate here really means to turn away from. And it has nothing to do with the way we say, I hate you or I despise you or whatever other words you use to indicate that you really dislike something. It's nothing to do with that. In too many other places in the Gospels, we know that just the opposite is demanded. Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Obviously, He's not going to tell you to hate father, mother, sister, brother, children. Love one another as I have loved you, He said. Paul even tells us we're not to judge ourselves because only... God gets to be the judge. Hence, when we evaluate ourselves, we have to be very careful how we do that. What Jesus is really demanding of His disciples is that their loves and their loyalties to this life has to become a second priority. To be a disciple is to turn your face from all the other things that would hold our attention and give Christ and the Gospel center stage. Does that mean we stop loving children and wife and all the other relationships? No. But it means we put them into a proper relationship. And so the words to our text, whoever comes after me cannot be my disciple unless he loves me more. That may not be an exact translation, but it's a better understanding of what Jesus meant. That's a pretty good slap in the face, however, isn't it? 
That's still rather shocking for us. Discipleship comes at a great cost. The entry fee into the kingdom of heaven is nothing. It's free. It's called grace. If you really want to follow Jesus, it costs everything. And then Jesus uses a couple of parables to explain what he means. What kind of fool begins to build a tower without calculating how much bricks and mortar it'll take? Otherwise, everybody will make fun of you when you can't finish the building. Or what king would go out to make war without sitting down with his advisors and counting the cost of the campaign? Otherwise, he'll march forth only to have to retreat in a hurry. And between you and me, I hope the folks in Washington, when they're thinking about Syria, are listening to that passage. And then Jesus gives us the most profound test. If you really want to be my disciple, you've got to pick up your own cross and follow me. Now, we have some idea what that means. The disciples really didn't. They really weren't far enough along into this business of discipleship to have the same understanding we have. But we understand what that means. Count the cost. Jesus is not trying to scare people off. He wants us, indeed everyone, to be a disciple. But discipleship is demanding. You can't say, well, I'll go to church most Sundays and I'll give the church some money and once in a while I'll do something at the church and I'll try to be good the rest of the time and I hope that'll be enough. That doesn't work. Discipleship demands everything. One writer put it, Jesus is a dangerous, demanding, expensive operator inviting people on the most costly trip ever taken. This is not a course in Religion 101 where you sit back in class, take a few notes, think some lazy thoughts about God. This is called discipleship. This is Jesus, and if you cut cards with Jesus, He will pick you clean. We're not talking about trinkets or part-time loyalty. We're talking about a commitment that takes, well, it takes everything. Now, lest that seem like an awful heavy price to pay, I would remind you that you're going to end up paying for whatever you decide to do with your whole life anyway, whether you follow Jesus or not. Because you see, in the end... We all have to give up fathers and mothers, sisters, brothers, children, because there are no pockets in a shroud. And we all know where life ends ultimately. A Princeton student was asked about the wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And she said, I don't believe there's anything worth dying for. I don't believe there's anything worth dying for. Well, 40 years ago, as a young man fixing to be drafted to go to Vietnam, I might have agreed with that statement. But let's think about what that really says. If there's nothing worth dying for, then we all ultimately have the unhappy task of dying for nothing. 
Because we're going to die. That's just the simple truth of it. Our living and our dying ought to count for something, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? We all ultimately, in the end, face the question, what's worth living and dying for? Do we take up our cross and follow? For folks who are steeped in a culture of success like ours, that doesn't sound like success. That's surely not what most of the people in the world are in the market for. And that's one of the reasons modern-day Christianity stays as far away from texts like this as it can stay. Because we'd really rather make it easy than give the true demands of gospel. Because the truth is, discipleship costs everything. But it's worth the cost. It really is worth the cost. I want to close with a story. It's one of my very favorites. It's from Will Williman, who used to be dean of the chapel at Duke University. And it must be good because y'all know how I feel about Duke. And I'd never say anything from anybody from there. He said a while back he got a phone call from an irate parent. I hold you personally responsible for this. Who, me? The father was mad, upset because his graduate school-bound daughter had just informed him that she was going to throw it all away and go do mission work with the Presbyterians in Haiti. It's absurd, her father said. A BS degree in mechanical engineering and she's going to go dig ditches in Haiti? And Willimon responded, well, I doubt if she received much training in ditch digging here at the university, but I'm sure she's a quick study. And the father said, this is not funny. This is no laughing matter. You are irresponsible to encourage her to do this. I hold you personally responsible. Now look here, buster, Willimon responds. Weren't you the one that had her baptized? Well, uh, yes. And didn't you take her to Sunday school and read her Bible stories and let her go with the Presbyterian Youth Fellowship to ski and veil? Well, yeah. Don't butt me. It's your fault she believed all this stuff and she's gone and thrown her life away on Jesus. But all we ever wanted was for her to be a good Presbyterian. Well, you messed up because now she's a disciple. That's what counting the cost means. That's what counting the cost. What really matters? It's not about hating anybody. It's not about turning away from family. It's asking the question, what is the most important part of life? It's following the one who's the author of life. And that's the one thing that is truly profound enough and worthy enough to live for and die for. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.